Good morning. Whoop. Good morning and welcome. It's a blessing to gather together on the Lord's Day. But if we're to gather together in a way that is pleasing to God, we need His help. So let's start our time together by seeking His help in a moment of silent prayer followed by prayer together. Let's pray. Father, you have heard our prayer. We come humbly seeking your help, that we might be strengthened, and seeking to give you praise, that we might honor you. Work in us and through us this day, in a manner that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us this morning to worship with these words from Psalm 105. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. He is the Lord our God, His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our heavenly Father, to whom belong the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 210. Number 210 in your Psalter hymnal. We'll sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 10.
Jesus taught us that our obligation before God is both simple and absolutely comprehensive. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment. And there's a second which is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Our children can understand that. And yet not one of us manages to uphold it. Which means that if we are to stand before God, we can't do it on the basis of the merits that we have obtained. On the basis of what we have done. But only on the basis of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. And He's done everything. Romans 6 tells us we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, that's how we started. was enslaved. Unable to not rebel against God, unable to not do what was wicked in his sight. But for those who trust in Christ, who are joined to him by faith, we've been crucified. We've died to sin. The chains have broken off. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which means that command that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And that other command, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that no longer condemns us now. That shows us how we're to to reveal our faith, how we're to show our gratitude. But only if we're in Christ. And so our calling, hearing that, is to confess to Him and to ourselves and to all the world that our hope and our life are found in Christ. And so we do that now. By singing together hymn number 376, O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire, we'll sing all four stanzas as our confession.
We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And that we might do so as those who've been delivered from our slavery to sin and death, God gives us His law. That law which once condemned us now guides us in a life of gratitude. And so God says to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That last one's the hard one, isn't it? Shows that it's not just about how we look. It's not just about the things that we outwardly do. It's even about the desires of our heart. God wants us to show our gratitude for Christ and our faith in Christ in every aspect of life. And that means we need His help. So we come to Him in prayer. As we do so, a number of prayer updates and concerns... Um, obviously, we need rain. We need to be praying for that. Um, so let's, let's keep that in our prayers. Um, a lot of folks mourning. We had uh, Julia's funeral was on Thursday. Uh, and there are a lot of folks hurting among our young people. Um, pray for comfort and encouragement, and confidence arising out of the gospel. Bruce and Linda Smith are mourning the death of Linda's stepmother, Laura Bruker, who was uh, taken to be with the Lord on Tuesday. And that funeral's coming up on, uh, on Monday. It's going to be a, a private family affair. But uh, pray for the Smith and Bruker families. Um, we rejoice that James Sneller is feeling better. He suffered a concussion last week during a pool-related incident. So praise the Lord for the the healing God has given to little James. Um, Barrett Gritter also, John John Timmerman's grandson, had surgery last week on Wednesday, 
and that went well. His recovery is going well, so praise the Lord for that. Also, Jim Walthorn um, was cleared. He's been recovering from a bone marrow transplant, and he's been cleared to return home to Big Rapids. So praise the Lord for that healing. Um, and pray for Peter Chapkus, who is uh, soon to get out of the army and is figuring out what comes next. Pray that God would grant guidance. Those are the big ones. There's so many little ones. We need to pray that God would uphold our brothers and sisters uh, in all of their needs and in all of their struggles. So let's do that. Let's ask for his care. Lord, our Heavenly Father, when we focus for just a moment on the needs and the worries and the fears and the weakness We're overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the realization that we are not enough. That we are far too weak. We can't even see the fullness and the reality of the needs that loom before us. But when we focus on you, our fear departs. And our worry evaporates because you are sovereign, the creator of heaven and earth, who calls things that are not and causes them to be, and who loved us so much that you sent your beloved son to die that we might live. So turn our eyes fully and constantly upon you. Teach us to trust in you at all times. And Lord, make it to be our passion to live for you as your servants. That we might demonstrate that we belong to you, that we love you. That you are our very identity. Lord, there are so many hurting in our midst, grieving the death of loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would provide the strength and the encouragement and the blessing that they crave. We pray for Seth and Miriam, Jim and Elizabeth, Jackson all of the friends and family of Julia in our midst, as well as her family throughout the area, we ask that you would provide the comfort and the strength and the encouragement that they need. And we thank you for the testimony of Christ that she gave that allows us to have a measure of joy in the midst of our grief. We pray, too, for the Smiths and the Bruker family. And we thank you that they, too, have that sure hope of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would comfort all of those who grieve at this time. And that you would enable each one to rejoice in the reality that Christ has overcome death. In his death and his resurrection. So that all who die believing in him can be sure that they 
that they will enter fully and immediately into the presence of our Heavenly Father. We so thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for the many answered prayers for healing that you have given. We thank you for the healing that James has experienced after suffering a concussion this past week and also his, uh, his cousin with whom he collided, how you have provided healing for both of them. We thank you for the healing and the provision that you've given to Jim Walthorn and also to little Barrett. We pray that you would continue to heal each of these and to strengthen and encourage them. And Lord, likewise, the many who are uh, dealing with long-term medical needs, those undergoing chemotherapy and those awaiting further diagnosis or treatment plans for cancer and other ailments. Lord, we pray that you would provide as only you are able, that you would grant healing to the body, but also encouragement and comfort for the soul, so that each one might experience your fatherly care moment by moment and day by day. Pray for those who have been Drifting, Lord, struggling with their faith, struggling with their relationships. I pray that you would provide answers to those with doubts and fears. Comfort to those who have been drifting. Strengthening of faith to those who have wavered. Repentance to those living in sin. Reconciliation to those who find themselves at odds with those in their lives. Lord, you know the needs of each one. And we pray that you would meet them in ways that are powerful and pervasive. And Lord, we pray for our region. It's been such a dry stretch and we see the crops withering. And that reminds us, Lord, that not a single kernel can germinate without your fatherly direction. Not a single drop of rain can fall to nourish those crops apart from your will. And so, Lord, we pray that you would provide for the crops in the field that you would allow them to flourish by the water that you send. And Lord, we pray too for the rest of our work, the rest of the labor that you've put in our hands. We confess that none of it, not the, the construction, not the paperwork, not the raising of children or the managing of families, none of it can avail a single profitable thing apart from your hand. So we pray that you would provide as only you are able and that you would provide richly. We pray for our loved ones who are far from us. We think especially of Peter as he's preparing to get out of the army. Lord, we ask that you would grant him wisdom, that you would guide him in a way that, uh, that directs him closer and closer unto you so that more and more he might lead his life in a way that, that reveals your guidance. And Lord, we pray for your church, for your church here at Grace, 
bless the elders and the deacons and the ministry that, that these men might guide your people in a way that, that is consistent with your will. And that we might build one another up and minister to one another, all of us, so as to together recall that we are your people. That we are fully and utterly reliant on you and that you perfectly provide according to our needs. And Lord, give us a, a longing for our neighbors, for our co-workers, for our family members to turn unto you. Give us the courage to speak to them the words they need to hear about your gospel, to show them the love that they need to see, to live before them in a way that demonstrates your power at work within us, to turn us from sin and to, to reveal through us the holiness and the love of Christ. Father, we pray that you would work within this world to pave the way for the proclamation of the gospel, working in our elected leaders, in the magistrate, to restrain sin, to promote what is good, to allow the preaching of your word to be faithfully brought forth at all times and in every place. And now, Father, as we prepare to hear your word, we know that word, it proclaims comfort and power for those who trust in you, but also judgment for those who stand opposed to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would use that word to draw each one here closer to you, strengthening their faith, working faith in those who lack it, but also, Lord, Cause it to fill us with compassion for those who yet stand against you. That we might be instruments to reach out to them and to draw them near to you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading from Exodus 7 strongly emphasizes the spiritual war that was happening in Egypt as God was preparing to deliver his people from there. But that's not just about Egypt. That spiritual war is happening here in America and throughout the world. As those who hate God demonstrate their rebellion, demonstrate their hatred in the way that they speak, in the way that they educate, in the way that they govern, in the way that they work, in all of life. Psalm 2 reminds us that it's a spiritual war and reminds us that the only escape is by bowing before the Son of God who is the King of Kings, who will willingly provide deliverance and life and help to all who trust in Him, but who will judge those who refuse. So let's recall that as we stand and sing together Psalm 2 from Selection B. This is a a tune that you should be able to find familiar. It's it's a fairly um, recognizable, I think, tune. Um, But we're going to sing all the stanzas as we prepare to turn to God's Word. 2, Selection B.
our scripture text this morning is Exodus 4, or Exodus 7, verses 8 through 24. Uh, but we're going to start reading at chapter 6, verse 28, so that we can see the context. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that all may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed, 
after the Lord had struck the Nile. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of Christ our King, as Exodus described Moses in his first conflicts with Pharaoh, we saw that this was not merely a labor dispute. It was not merely a geopolitical clash. This was, in fact, a battle between competing gods. It was a battle in a war, in fact that began in the Garden of Eden and will not fully end until the final day of judgment. Today we look at the first major battle within this segment of the war that happened in Egypt. And we're going to find that it's filled with symbolism. In fact, each of the plagues that God pours out on Egypt is filled with symbols and lessons. You see, our God is sovereign. He does nothing without intending to teach His people by it about Him and about His will for them. In delivering His people from Egypt, God was doing far more than simply rescuing His people from an intolerable situation. He was... Just delivering before his people a series of vivid lessons that would help them to understand the world in which they live, their identity within that world, his identity as their God, and their calling for how they are to live in a world where multitudes worship false gods that are really just figments of their imaginations that they have brought forth in order to justify not serving the true God. And God caused Moses to write it all down for us because it's not just a history lesson about an ancient people. We still live in the midst of the war. We still live in the midst of people who serve false gods by which they seek to justify their devotion to rebellion. Their stubborn refusal to serve the true and living God. And as we come to this first plague poured out upon Egypt, we find that God uses that plague to demonstrate for us and for all of ancient Israel the end, the judgment. Right at the very beginning, He wants us to see the end game. And the end game is judgment on all who stand against him. The theme of this passage is quite simple. The Lord displays his coming judgment. But as simple as it is, it is profound and essential for our understanding. The Lord displays his coming judgment. And he starts out by showing that he will devour those who steal his honor. Which is what we find starting in verse 8. Now remember, Moses' first interaction with Pharaoh had rather unhappy results. Not only did Pharaoh reject God's command that his people be allowed to go out into the wilderness to worship him, he also, Pharaoh, substantially increased their workload, increased the misery of the people of Israel, so that the people started turning against Moses and Aaron, saying, you're you're not delivering us, you're making it worse. 
So we can kind of understand Moses' reluctance when God says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, hold up. That didn't turn out so well. But God assures his servant. He will use Moses to reveal his power. And through this conflict, not only Israel, but all of Egypt will encounter the power of the true God. But before he goes, Moses receives some instruction. He's, God says to him that Pharaoh is going to demand a sign. And we can understand that. The last time he saw Moses and Aaron, he sent them away. Showed them that he regarded them as no, nothing more than spokesmen for the slaves. He had no respect for them. Told them not to come back. Punished the people on their behalf. Now he comes back. He declares that he's speaking for this God whom Pharaoh has rejected. Pharaoh's going to want some evidence that this God exists. And that he should listen to him. So God tells Moses and Aaron to perform a miracle. They're to take Aaron's staff, his shepherd's staff, and... Turn it into a serpent, just as they did as a sign when they first returned to Egypt for Israel. And they obey perfectly. They go back to Pharaoh. The king does demand a sign. Aaron throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. But then things get interesting. Because Pharaoh, well, he should have accepted that sign. He should have recognized the power of that miracle and what it certified about the true God. But instead... For reasons we'll consider in just a moment, instead he challenges that sign. Pharaoh calls his wise men and sorcerers, the, the magician priests of Egypt, and he says, hey, you do that too. And alarmingly, amazingly, they succeed. Now, the Lord doesn't really give us any detail in, in terms of how they do that. It might be that they use the kind of Tricks that modern magicians use. Modern magicians do their magic by sleight of hand. They get your attention over here so they can do something over there. That might have been what the magicians did. Or they might have used genuine black magic. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says that Satan comes with all power and false signs and wonders. So it might be that God permitted these magician priests of Egypt to actually turn their staffs into serpents. Nonetheless, God wasn't done. Because verse 12 says that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Although the magician priests were able in some manner to duplicate what Aaron did, it was God who got the victory. And yet, Pharaoh refused to listen. Because regardless of the power that God's servants demonstrate, those who embrace sin will reject God. But we need to ask, what exactly is God showing us in this first miracle? To answer that, we need a little bit of background about Egypt's culture so that we can see this confrontation, as it were, through Pharaoh's eyes. Why does Pharaoh demand a sign of Moses and Aaron? On the surface, he would have presented that as a reasonable request. He had already told them he doesn't believe that their God exists. 
Now they come back speaking in the name of that God. He wants a sign to see that, that this is a real God. So on the surface, it would be made to appear reasonable. But there's something below the surface. Because remember, ultimately, this is a conflict between gods. God said to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. When Moses comes, he comes as the spokesman for Yahweh, for the living God, for the God of Israel. And Pharaoh, he's not just a guy. He's not just a democratically elected king. He wasn't that. He was regarded by Egypt as the living embodiment of their chief god. They served a multitude of gods, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But he was regarded as the physical manifestation of their chief god. And so in challenging his ruling, you see, there was no appeals process to Pharaoh. If he spoke, it was law, and you just liked it. If you didn't like it, well, you'd better be quiet about it. Because if you weren't quiet about it, you probably wouldn't live to tell others. In challenging him, they were doing the unthinkable. They were challenging Egypt's chief God. And so when they actually bring forth the sign that he has demanded, Pharaoh can't not answer that. Their God has just challenged Egypt's God. Egypt's God has to answer that, has to better them. God knew that. And so he sent Moses with not just a sign, but a sign that would be a direct challenge to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Remember when they first came, 400 plus years before, they were told, and this had not changed, they were told that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Here comes Aaron with the staff of a shepherd. A sign of defilement, a sign of something to be despised in the eyes of Egypt. He throws it down and it becomes what? It becomes a serpent, not just a serpent. We saw last time when God gave him this, or not last time, but a few times ago, when God gave him this sign, that would have been a cobra. On the crown of Pharaoh would have been the front half of an enraged cobra that was the symbol of Egypt's priests. It was a demonstration of power, a call to fear. Fear this one. There is death in him. Aaron takes that staff that they so despised and throws it down and makes the sign of Pharaoh. He was demonstrating the God whom we serve. The God for whom we speak. He's the one who made Pharaoh. He's the one who controls Pharaoh. He's the one who has authority over Pharaoh. And he exercises that authority by that which you despise. This is a direct challenge to Pharaoh. Egypt's king rises to the challenge. He brings his Wise men and his sorcerers, these are basically the priests of Egypt's national religion. He's seeking to use them to discredit the God of the slaves. You see, ancient Egypt thrived on the stories of these magicians. How they could take inanimate objects and turn them into creatures. 
How they could do wonders that would strike fear in the hearts of men. How they could bring forth that in which was the power of death. And that's what they were being asked to do. You saw what they did. Do the same. Amazingly, they do. Again, we don't know how they did. That they rise to the challenge. They meet the sign. But again, remember what happens next. Immediately, Aaron's serpent comes over and devours each of theirs. A sign of judgment. Sure, you can imitate. Satan always imitates what God does. But God triumphs over him and his false signs. Folks, the lesson of this symbolism is rich and consistent. Pharaoh sees himself and the gods whom he represents as having supreme authority. Egypt will bow to them and to no other. He will command the people and he alone. And to his gods, his people owe all honor, not to any other. That's the culture where we live today. Our state, which once was in many ways a Christian state, not as much as it should have been. Many were they who fought to have our Constitution openly acknowledge Christ, and they should have. But for many years, you couldn't serve in this nation, in public office, without acknowledging Christ without acknowledging the triune God as the true and living God, because how can you take a vow in the name of a God you don't believe exists? But no longer. Today, most of our elected officials sadly serve the God of self, and the God of money, and the God of power, and the God of man. They say, no longer follow God, follow the Bible, but follow the science Follow the education, follow the polls. And woe to him who openly acknowledges the emptiness of those false gods. They, will, they, they don't have any problem with us if we sit down, sit down and shut up and, and let them say what they want to say. If we bow before their little altar and fly a rainbow flag in acknowledgement of their pride and acknowledgement of their false gods. That's why they don't bother the mainline churches. But if you dare to challenge them, if you dare to say there is only one God and that's not it, if you dare to say that man is not a God but must bow to the true and living God, if you dare to say that this is truth and whatever this says must be acknowledged as truth, they will challenge you. They will demand a sign. Because as 2 Thessalonians 2 also says, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And understand that what was true of Pharaoh is just as true of the people of our culture. Unless the Lord himself changes their hearts, they will harden those hearts and they will refuse to believe. That does not mean that we can retreat. That does not mean that we can be silent. It was very clear that Pharaoh didn't want to hear from Moses and Aaron. 
that Pharaoh wasn't willing to acknowledge the true God. But they were not permitted to say, well, we tried. I guess we're done here. Nor are we. Our calling is to continue, as was the calling of Moses and Aaron. They were prophets of the living God, and so are we. And even when they refuse, even when they reject, even when they persecute in answer, we are called to testify. Your calling is to submit to Him. Your calling is to acknowledge Him. Your calling is to serve Him and Him alone. Even when they refuse. God's not done. Because Pharaoh is not in this alone. He's the ringleader, but his people follow him willingly. And so with the next sign, God reveals that he will destroy those who serve his enemies. The section begins in verse 14 with the Lord pronouncing a verdict concerning Pharaoh. He says Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now throughout Exodus... We read God pronounce a similar verdict that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But usually he uses a Hebrew word that means strong. In other words, he's rebelling powerfully. He's strong-willed in his rejection of God. But here, interestingly, he uses a different word. A word that means heavy. At the very start of the actual plagues... God declares a verdict against Pharaoh that is uniquely Egyptian. You see, they believed, they had a unique view of the judgment. They believed that after men die, they come before justice. And their heart is taken and put on the scales of justice. On one side, you remember the kids, you know, the the scales we're talking about like we have in vacation Bible school where we decide who brought the most uh, money, the most coins, the boys or the girls. Well, using a scale like that, they believed that the, the feather, they believed that righteousness was lightweight. And so they, they believed the feather of righteousness was put on one side and the man's heart was put on the other. And if his heart was heavy, that would show that it was filled with sin and unrighteousness and injustice. And he would be devoured. And God says here that Pharaoh's heart is heavy. In a uniquely Egyptian way, he's saying he's filled with unrighteousness and he is due to be devoured, destroyed. And so God gives Moses and Aaron more instruction. They are to approach Pharaoh in the morning along the Nile River. Now, no longer are they meeting him in the... the, privacy of the palace, but out in public, beside the Nile River. And there they are to call him once more, to acknowledge his duty and his guilt, so that the people at large can hear the calling of the true God upon their false God. And so that the people at large can see the consequence of refusal. They obey him. They do what God said, and... The result of what God has told them to do is exactly what he told them to expect. Aaron takes his staff, stretches it out over the waters of the Nile, and the river is struck, and the water becomes blood. The water of the river 
the water of the many canals that stretch out from it, the water of the retaining ponds and the reservoirs, even the water in the wooden and stone vessels immediately turned to blood. It's a disaster. The fish all die. The water is undrinkable. It stinks. The whole land stinks of blood. Now, there are... Well, we we should note, that's not the end, because Pharaoh (laughs) calls his magicians again. Apparently, the water underground was not changed. The water that wasn't on the surface was still water. It hadn't turned to blood. And so the Egyptians draw some of that water. Now, there weren't many wells in Egypt at the time. There wasn't a need for many wells. Most of the people were located around the Nile River. And that provided all their drinking, all of their cleaning, all of their needs for water. But there were a few wells, so they drew some water from the wells. And the magicians also turned the water into blood. Now, there are many among the scholars of today say this didn't really happen. It wasn't really blood. See, what what happened, they say, they postulate, is that there was flooding upstream in an area where the, the soil is red. And so it caused the river to look like blood, to look red. And And the smell and the fish kill, that was probably from a a bloom of microorganisms or toxic bacteria that that filled the water at the same time. That would have caused the stench. And of course, the, the, the dying fish would have also caused a stench. But here's the thing. That's not what God says here, is it? He says all the water turned to blood. Not just the water of the river and the connected canals, but also the ponds and the reservoirs and the the separate vessels. All of the surface water turned to blood. And Pharaoh wasn't dumb. He knew the difference between polluted water and blood. He wouldn't have been very impressed by some muddy water. God did exactly what he said he would do. Now, The magicians, as I said, also turned some water into blood. But note the irony in that. They did not reverse the curse that God had sent on the land. They did not turn the blood into water again. They turned some of the little water that had not been transformed also into blood, rendering it unfit for consumption, rendering it a curse. You see, that's what God's enemies always do. They can't overturn the curse that God sends. All they can do is increase the suffering and the misery of those who serve them. Nonetheless, Pharaoh, again, hardens his heart, refuses to listen. But we need to know, what is this sign all about? What's the message to it? What's it proclaim? Again, this is a sign familiar to Moses. When he first came back to Egypt, he was told... Here he was given several signs by God, one of which was the turning of the staff into a serpent, and one of which was taking water from the Nile, pouring it out on the earth, and it turning into blood. But that was limited. That was a small amount. It was a bucketful. This is unlimited in a magnitude that we can't even imagine. All the surface water of Egypt turning into blood. 
Now, here's the thing. It's hard to overestimate the significance of the Nile River to Egypt. For good reason. The waters of the Nile were seen as the nation's life source. Obviously, they drank from it, and they used it to irrigate their fields. But also the fish that comprised much of their diet, they drew from it. The silt of its annual floods made their fields fertile. They sailed its waters to ply their trade with inland nations. It provided them with national security. And therefore, Egypt regarded Israel as the embodiment of their most beloved God. Ironically, they called him Happy. And Happy was regarded as the God of prosperity and fertility. They worshipped Happy. They sang hymns to Happy. They saw Happy as a God who gave them their most basic provisions. That's why Pharaoh began his day bathing in the river. It was an homage to their God of prosperity and fertility. When Moses turns the water into blood, God is killing their false God, Happy. By Moses' mouth, God speaks and Happy dies. All the food that he has provided to the people turns belly up. No longer could this God water their fields. No longer could this false God cleanse them. In fact, he can't even slake their thirst. The true God, Yahweh, is forcing Egypt to see that happy is a lie. That it is Yahweh who is the source of all that is good. He provides the food they eat. He waters their field. He er, fulfills their thirst. And he is able to withhold the good from those who reject him. By turning Egypt's water to blood, God is judging those who reject him. And he's also declaring judgment on those who destroy his servants. Remember, at the start of Exodus, when Pharaoh decrees that the people of Israel have become too great, too numerous, too strong, how does he determine to weaken them. He commands that the Nile, that source of life and goodness, become a watery grave for their baby boys. And so now God, in his first act of judgment against Egypt, takes that source of life and fills it with death. Perfect is God's justice. But understand the lesson is not for Egypt alone. This plague proclaims a lesson for all of mankind. All of humanity was created with the purpose of serving and glorifying God. That's why we were made. That's why we were given our gifts. That's why God sustains us every single day. When folks turn aside to worship and serve that which is false... They take from God what belongs to Him. They steal His honor. They rob Him of His glory. And that is the worst sin we could commit. So this plague doesn't proclaim judgment merely against those who serve happy and Pharaoh. It proclaims judgment against Hindus and Muslims and Mormons. It proclaims the destruction of atheists and humanists who exalt man to the throne. It proclaims a warning of impending judgment to to those who deify the environment or their jobs or their reputations or their families. God alone deserves the honor of being regarded as God. 
and he will destroy those who serve anyone else. You know, Exodus 7 isn't the only place in the Bible where water is turned to blood. The Bible's last book declares a very similar judgment. In Exodus, or Revelation 16, we're told about God pouring out on the land the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now there's debate on whether the initial judgment here refers to Israel in its unbelief, in its rejection of Christ, or all the world. I happen to believe it's yes. It's both. It's a proclamation of judgment on unbelieving Israel and on all who refuse to serve the true and living God. And the second pouring out of a bowl of wrath, it's poured out into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water and they became blood. In other words, God is telling us there, What he did to Egypt of old. And what he has done to the unbelieving Jews 2,000 years ago, he will do to all of mankind at the end. If you refuse to serve the true and living God, if you refuse to bow before the Son of God, who is the King of kings, then he will pour out his wrath and his destruction upon you. Let there be no mistake. There was not a person in Egypt who was able to drink that water. Every last one of them was out there with shovels digging wells, digging holes in the ground, desperate for water to soothe their thirst. Because they had all served happy and they had all followed Pharaoh and they were therefore all receiving judgment. The day is coming very soon and there will be no digging of wells. There will be no relief for your thirst. In that place where the fire burns continually, in that place where God's judgment is poured out without end, they will cry out for relief. They will gnash their teeth. They will beg for mercy. But it's past the time of mercy. And yet, in His mercy, God has not allowed that time to dawn yet. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He has delayed pouring out that bowl of wrath upon all of mankind because he's giving everyone opportunity to turn, to repent, to refuse to worship the false gods of this world, the gods of man, the gods of environment, the gods of science, the gods of politics and power, to serve the true God who alone can save. But if we've turned to him, then beloved We've already been judged. Ephesians 2 says, You too once lived in the passions of your flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all started in the same place. We all started worshiping man, worshiping self, serving the false gods. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And if by grace you have been saved, if by grace you have turned to Christ, you've already died. We heard it in our assurance of pardon. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. It's the only escape. But it's an escape that is absolutely sure, that is absolutely flawless. Ponder this coming week in the warmth of the season as you're pausing from your labor to take a long drink of cool water. Ponder the judgment, the destruction, the endless misery that is coming on those who insist on worshiping their false gods, on hardening their hearts in rebellion. And may God cause each one of us to turn to the living water of Jesus Christ who has already suffered, who has already died that we might live eternally. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have been merciful beyond measure. For though we deserved your wrath, yet you poured out grace. Work in our hearts that we might receive the grace of Christ, that we might trust in Him always. And Lord, open our lips that we might tell others that there is refreshment, that there is life, that there is eternal joy for those who bow the knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us confess together in song that our hope, that our help, that our life are found in the Lord as we sing together number 53 from our Psalter hymnal. Number 53, in thee, O Lord, I put my trust. We're going to sing the odd-numbered stanzas.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have provided for us not only life, but all the things that we need in life. Receive now our tithes and also our offerings as a token of our gratitude and a sign of our faith. And may you be glorified through the use of them, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 515 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Number 515, More Than Conquerors.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.